Thank you, Mr. Bynum. Good afternoon, everybody. Lovely spring day here. We'll be able to enjoy it for about the next 72 hours. Then we'll go right into summer. There are a lot of ways to come up with a topic for a sermon. One can share a topic of recent personal Bible study. Uh, sometimes there's a recent conversation that sparks a little interest and, hmm, let me, let me look at that. Occasionally it's something from the news or from current events that proves God's way to be correct or proves that Satan's way is ruinous. Sometimes a topic comes up and you kind of think, hmm, how would I answer that? Or, I don't think I've heard that in a while. Well, today's message has probably all of those, but even more. For the topic today, I went to the teens. Sometimes a scary proposition, but we went to the teens. You see, we've asked the teens a couple times over the past few years in the teen program, said, what would you like to hear as far as a topic for Bible studies? Or what questions do you have? So a couple things come up more often than others. Some have been answered, some have not. But I decided to answer one of those. It's been phrased a couple different ways, but let's go ahead and take a look at one of those today. Why did God allow polygamy? Why did God allow polygamy? That's the way it's been phrased in the question. Why did God seem to allow so many men, even righteous men, and heroes of the faith to have multiple wives? And how can they be considered righteous? Or examples for us when they do that? Why didn't God clearly prohibit them from doing so? And why didn't he correct them? Well, let's take a look at that. Today we're going to unpack the topic. And with this being Women's History Month, and more broadly a day in an age where the definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman is not only in jeopardy, it's criticized, it's torn down and even destroyed, perhaps it's a good opportunity for us to answer this as far as a question for the teens and also for the long timers amongst us to be refreshed on the topic so that we also can be ready to give an answer. Now there are a couple of sections in the Old Testament where the scripture actually explicitly says to avoid polygamy. And polygamy, poly, many, uh, and gamy as far as marriage, so multiple wives. A couple of areas that talks about this. The seventh commandment forbids adultery. Okay, once you're married, you have to stay within that union of marriage. And that is sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. It's forbidden. And we see that in Exodus 20, verse 14. Very clear. Deuteronomy forbids Israel's future kings for multiplying wives. Number two, we see that in Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. And the Song of Solomon is very clear as it goes through very beautiful language about the language and as it paints monogamy, a relationship and a sexual union between a husband and a wife only. And it stays there. It's the preferred path. But mankind, of course, has a tendency and a proclivity to go its own way. And even the clearest of God's instructions can be twisted and or rejected. So what we have left 
throughout the Bible are a bunch of examples, often bad examples, and they show the pain and the suffering and the torment that people have to go through because they've rejected God's way. Once, when Mark Twain was lecturing in Utah, a Mormon acquaintance of his argued with him on the subject of polygamy. And after a long and rather heated debate, the Mormon finally said, can you find me a single scripture, a single passage from the Bible which forbids polygamy? Mark Twain then replied, certainly. No man can serve two masters. <laughs> Mic drop, see ya, walked off the stage. They didn't have mics back then, that would have been it. Even today, you'll see sometimes bumper stickers or t-shirts. I recently saw one that said, the definition of polygamy, the ability to disappoint several women at one time. Probably accurate. Well, let's see what was so obvious to Mark Twain and see what was not so obvious to mankind from the very earliest pages of the book of Genesis. Turn over to Genesis 4, if you will. Genesis 4. Genesis 4. Genesis 4, and here we see, as we start, we see what's happening with Cain and he murdering Abel. We can see his, the Cain's offering being rejected. We can see then, as it goes through the line of Cain, until we get to verse 19. Verse 19, then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. So it didn't take long. I think I have two pages in the Bible before we actually get to polygamy. Man didn't wait long. Now it says Lamech took, and that's probably a good way to put it. It's a very selfish, it's a greedy taking. He decided he was going to do what he wanted to do. And you can see from the scriptures following verse 19, you read a little bit more about Lamech, and he was a murderer. He obviously had problems with his emotions, self-restraint, control. So it's not surprising he also took two wives. So once again, we see very shortly after Adam and Eve, polygamy has already begun. And throughout the Old Testament, the Bible describes many situations of polygamy. But description does not mean prescription. And I'll say that again. Description does not mean prescription. What this means is that God, through various authors in the Old Testament and later in the New, never commends polygamy. But he describes the events that happened and the actions of mankind through cause and effect. That those actions, though common in the society around them and accepted, are contrary to God's way and will have disastrous implications. One example of the scripture describing the problems with polygamy is over in Deuteronomy 21.15. Deuteronomy 21.15. It says, if a man has two wives, kind of starting on a problem right there, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, 
loved and unloved. And they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, we can see where this is going already. It's a problem. Now, it doesn't say should have two wives. It just says he had two wives. It's merely stating the problem, the description. But then it goes on to explain what was a common problem. There's going to be favoritism. You're going to have a favorite wife. And it's going to lead to problem after problem after problem. Tied to that scripture, there's a passage that describes one situation where multiple wives was allowed. It was not to be the norm. It was an unusual situation. It was called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. And that's words from the word Latin, the Latin word leveret, which means husband's brother or brother-in-law. So it's leveret marriage. And it was described just a couple chapters later in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5 verses, Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 12. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 12. And it was not the result of lust or greed or lack of self-restraint like we'd read earlier when it comes to Lamech. In this case, this is a situation where a woman whose husband had died, could have been in warfare, could have been an accident, could have been disease, then married the brother of her husband. I know a lot of women would kind of go, oh, I don't know about that, I'm not going there. Well, there was a reason for it at the time. In those days, it was nearly impossible for an unmarried woman to provide for herself. Women were often uneducated, untrained. They relied on fathers, on brothers, on husbands for provision and for protection. Unmarried women were often subjugated to starvation, even prostitution, even slavery. So they needed that provision, that protection. And this was a provision for continuing the familial line by marrying a brother's wife. If he died without producing heirs, someone that would eventually take care of that woman who had no husband to care for her. Now, it's hard to imagine leveret marriage, even if done for altruistic reasons, still had any good situations in the family. I'm sure it complicated matters greatly. Even It's like having two cooks in the kitchen. It, it makes it difficult. But in the New Testament, as we see later, this was changed or cared for in a different way. When you had deacons and you had third tithe, where suddenly there was a different situation coming forward. Now, from Lamech on, the problem with polygamy, probably better understood if we wanted to actually go to the heart of the matter as problems with lust and greed and selfishness, self-centeredness, ego, lack of restraint. Well, they continue. And though the animals marched into the ark in pairs, mankind didn't like that and rejected that idea and reestablished polygamy very shortly after the flood. Men decided to play God rather than obey God. Men decided to play God rather than obey God by deciding to act on their own whims, their own wishes, rather than what God said to do. The men and women of the Old Testament were influenced by the society around them. We can understand that. There's things that they, when they're raised up someday, would probably look at us and say, you were influenced by that? We're like, yeah, yeah, I know, it's the society around us. It's a weakness, and they had them too. 
But some of those stories that we see in the Old Testament were not meant to be inspirational. They weren't meant to show us a great example. They were meant to be warnings for us, and they are. And the Old Testament has numerous portraits of polygamy, and they're not pretty pictures. Abraham, Jacob, Gideon, Gideon, a judge and a champion of Israel, he had 70 sons. Probably not from the same woman. I'm going to guess. Once again, didn't end up well for those sons. Like so many other of these situations, tragedy. He saw all of them die. David, a man after God's own heart. Eight wives, ten concubines. And we see that throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. We can see that described. And those are just the good examples. They got worse from there. The kings of Israel, kings of Judah, we see Rehoboam. We see Abijah, Ahab. We see Jehoram, Jehoiada, Jehoiachin. All of them, multiple, multiple wives. And then, then there's Solomon. He provided, he was provided an unparalleled wisdom by God. But what happened? He took polygamy to a whole new level. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Unbelievable. Even some of the finest women in the Bible, incredible examples, had their lives affected by polygamy. Think of a Sarah or Sarai, obviously brought into conflict with Hagar. Abraham's concubine. And she actually even had a role in that. Did that affect her family? Yeah. What about Esther the queen? A remarkable example. But at one point, she was at least part of a harem. I'm sure that affected her. How about Hannah? Mother of Samuel. Tremendous example. But obviously suffered the competitive indignity of not only not having children, but not only but not being the only wife of her husband, Elkanah. It affected a lot of people. We turned earlier to Genesis for the beginning, but let's get back to the real beginning. And for that, actually, we're going to turn to Matthew, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, and we're going to start verse 4. Matthew 19, verse 4. Matthew 19, verse 4. Here we have Christ teaching, and the specific topic is divorce. But Christ takes his listeners back to the original intent to get the big picture. Matthew 19, verse, we'll start in verse uh, 2. Matthew 19, verse 2. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Hmm, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered them and said to them, have you not read, and once again, they didn't realize who they were dealing with, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, and who was that? Him. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two, didn't say three, four, five, twenty, the two shall become one flesh. Christ always points back to the beginning, to the original intent of the marital union. 
And in doing so, let's actually go back to Genesis. We were in Genesis 4, but we probably could have started earlier. Genesis 2, to pick up that narrative that Christ is discussing. Genesis 2, Genesis 2 and verse 18. Genesis 2 and verse 18. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Doesn't say helpers, helper. And skipping down and breaking into verse 20, it says, so Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib with which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One woman, one woman was given to him as a helper. Not two, three, four. You don't see that. There's no thruples as I read in the news these days. It was two. Now, God could have given Adam multiple wives. I mean, from a human perspective, they were told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That would have made more sense if he gave him four or five wives, wouldn't it? You could just kind of get things done faster. Nope, that wasn't the original intent. Woman was created not to be his servant. It says helper, and sometimes people may take that wrong. But it was a helper, not a secretary, but it was someone to be able to help him do what he wasn't able to do by himself. It was, it was a helper to help him enlarge his, his horizons, both physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally, and that's what a wife does. A man without a, a wife is going to be, in many cases, kind of stunted in certain areas. And a wife, that helper, can help in so many ways. And that's why in Proverbs 18.22, Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife, once again, singular, a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's incredible the help that a wife can give a man. Now, flipping back to Matthew 19:6, Jesus, the very one who created Adam and Eve, the one who took the ribs from Adam, echoes that intent from the beginning. Matthew 19:6, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. And that's the definition right there of marriage. God does not put man together with multiple women. And any additional women are considered to be adulterous relationships. It breaks God's law. It is simple. It's sin. Now, Christ in this situation in Matthew 19 wasn't so much as disallowing something. You see that sometimes in certain commentaries. He wasn't disallowing something that was allowed earlier. What he was trying to do was go back. To what was and show that he was restoring ma marriage back to its original intent, his original in plan that he had for mankind. And then he goes on in verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, 
but from the beginning it was not so. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, we're not talking about divorce today, but once again, you can see what Christ is trying to talk about. What was the goal of marriage? What was the intent? He showed that the world, a sinful, hard-hearted society, had distorted the very definition and understanding of marriage. And from the beginning, the Bible presents monogamy as the divine ideal. One wife, one sexual partner, and God doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8, memory scripture for many. In fact, downstairs, we, in the fifth grade, sixth grade class, we hand out memory scriptures and happen to ask the, if the, this is only the second class, has anyone got any of the memory scriptures? And immediately a couple of the girls shot hands up. And I said, which one? And they said, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13. I'm like, yeah, great, fantastic. The, our young ones are learning that. It's true, and we see it throughout this whole situation when it comes to polygamy. Look at what God's intent was with marriage. Christ was basically just trying to reset the clock back to the original intent of a covenantal monogamous union. And the Apostle Paul built upon that foundation. Ephesians 5, and we're familiar with this, Ephesians 5, verse 22, starting, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband, singular, husband, is the head of the wife, singular, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Skipping down to verse 28. So husbands ought to love your own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's specifically addressing the marital relationship, and he always refers to it in the singular rather than the plural form. Now, if polygamy was allowable, the entire illustration of Christ and Christ's relationship with the church, his body, would have been completely missed here. Christ was trying to show the importance of a devoted husband to a devoted wife and the relationship here. And if you can't get that, a lot of these other things fall apart. Later in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, starting verse 2, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. She doesn't have to share with a bunch of other women. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What he's trying to show is that marriage requires so much. It requires listening, communication, time, understanding a spouse's needs and their feelings. And that's virtually impossible when you have multiple spouses. God didn't create it that way. Now, many of the leaders in the Old Testament failed in marriage 101, but the New Testament has the bar being raised. Leaders in the church had to be different. Titus 1, 
as well as 1 Timothy 3, state what should be obvious. If we look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, it says, a bishop must be blameless. And what's the very first thing he says after that? The husband of one wife. So that's for the ministry. Skipping down to verse 12, it says, let deacons be the husband of one wife. Right from the very foundation, husband of one wife, he's basically saying, guess what? You know, there are some issues here. Um, we're called to be different than the Roman or the Greek society around us. And that's going to be very obvious. There is to be abstinence before marriage and then faithfulness within it. And he was going to establish that right there with the leaders of the church. Well, we can see what God intended as the intent of marriage right from the beginning. But what about all those examples from the Old Testament? They're still there. What about them? Do they show that it's okay for righteous, God-fearing men to have more than one wife? Let's go into a couple of those situations to show that that is not the case. Now, our first president, George Washington, once said, example, whether it be good or bad, has a powerful influence. Very true, especially as we go through the Bible. And the philosopher John Locke is quoted as saying, bad examples influence more than good rules. And that's probably a, a valid thing to say as well. So when we look at some of the Old Testament examples, both of these maxims are shown to be accurate. Let's first look at Abraham. We know what happened for the most part with Sarah and with Hagar. And we see in Moses' retelling of that situation exactly what happened uh, when Abram took Hagar as a wife and it underscored the scripture's condemnation of polygamy. And he almost depicts Moses, uh, Moses almost depicts Abraham as kind of being taken in or mimicking the wickedness of Pharaoh, who actually had had Sarah in his harem at one point. Okay? Now, since we're already aware of that enmity and enmity and strife between Sarah and Hagar, we'll skip forward to the end of the account, Genesis 21. Genesis 21, 14, and we're going to see something here. Genesis 21, 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread in, a, in skin of water and put it, putting it on her shoulder, he gave it to the boy Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. You see, Abraham put away Hagar. He did not allow this family situation, a sinful situation, to last. And unfortunately, that whole situation where's that left us thousands of years later, but in a horrible, horrible bitterness between peoples in the Middle East. But if we read on, Abraham didn't stop there. He went fully after God's way and cleaned up his household. Genesis 25, verse 6. Genesis 25, verse 6, it says, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from his son Isaac, into the country of the East. He got rid of everything that was going to be a problem. He went fully and singularly devoted to God at that point in time and understood more about what the marriage union was about and he was going to set the example. And his son Isaac, though he probably lived and seen the bad situations, took that to heart. Unfortunately, his other son, Esau, did not and had multiple wives. Then it comes to his grandson, J Jacob. We have Jacob, his wives, Leah and Rachel. They had an epic jealousy 
and a rivalry that was only compounded by Jacob's favoritism. And then the addition of concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah, were added to this combustible mix. But for the first part of Jacob's life, you can see that even though God was working with him, he wasn't exactly totally converted at that point. He still had a lot of carnality, and it showed within his family relationships and the marital strife. But what happened to Jacob was very similar to what happened with his grandfather. He spiritually matured. Genesis 32 and verse 24 through 30 shows us. It says, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. So here we have him facing God. And now when he saw he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. We show he was more determined to go God's way. So he said to him, what's your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. We see suddenly what had been a kind of a casual relationship with God became much more determined. He wanted to go God's way. And what happened? A couple of chapters later, Genesis 35, verse 2, and Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in that day of my distress and has been with me in the way where I have gone. He was showing he was going to go God's way entirely. And just a little bit later in that same chapter, chapter 35, verse 19, it says, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Rachel died. And Leah, his only true wife, the first wife he had been committed to, remained after the death of Rachel. Jacob did not put her away. He loved Rachel, but the relationship was ended. And he had now a proper and true marriage. What about David? What about David? Multiple wives led to a family situation that included rape, murder. We heard about that last week. Amnon and Absalom, Tamar. We had lots of problems. What happened to him? 2 Samuel 12, starting verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you even from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and I'll give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with the wives inside of your son of this this son. God was warning David that his familial and his marriage sins were going to come back to haunt him. But after those trials, including the death of a baby, David did turn back. He went God's way, and he turned away from the multiple women. He devoted himself to just one wife. We see that his first wife, Michael, uh, the daughter of Saul, had apparently already died, and we can read that in 2 Samuel 6, but he put away all the other women. 
2 Samuel 20 verse 3 says, Now David came to the house, to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house and put them in seclusion and supported them, but he did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Not a pleasant situation, but he understood what he had to do. David, a man after God's own heart, showed he would give up everything to go God's way. Unfortunately, his early example was the one that was followed by his son, Solomon. In 1 Kings 11, we see what the result of that was. King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, and from the nations of whom the Lord had said, the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor shall they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. Apparently he did love the women. Verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow fully the Lord, as did his father David. So unfortunately, David's example early had affected his own son, and it affected the nation as a result. So some learned and did what they had to do to eliminate and go back to a true, faithful, monogamous marriage. Others did not. Hopefully this has kind of answered some of the questions around the subject of polygamy, but just we have to remember that just because men did it didn't mean it was right. God laid out specific instructions for marriage from the very creation of Adam and Eve. The examples of some of our spiritual forefathers are there for us to learn from, not necessarily to emulate in everything. Sometimes it's just there as a warning. And there are no good examples throughout the Bible of polygamy. None. Every one of them has some kind of problems, but there are plenty that have a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. Jesus Christ then restated the goal of a proper marriage between one man and one woman, and it was required of all Christian leaders. But, all right, how is that really applicable to us today? I mean, when I look out in the audience, I don't see a bunch of people married uh, with multiple wives, okay? I don't think Mr. Morris, when he had to put a list of where people were going to sit, had to say, okay, now how many of your wives are going to be showing up today? Four, five, six? He didn't have to do that. But Satan always wants man to think we know better than our Creator, so he's constantly trying to confuse mankind about the most basic family relationship. He hates family. Satan is asexual. He hates family. He hates marriage more than anything. And the thought of a family being built in the God family is the most despicable thing to him, and he'll do anything to confuse it. And he's doing it today. Most people don't realize that recent Gallup polls here in the United States show that one in five, one in five Americans now believe that polygamy, polygamy is morally acceptable. Dramatically up from uh, less than 7% in less than a decade. One in five. And it's only going to grow. 
Well, Jesus Christ looked to the origins of man. Well, let's look to the future, a time in the future, because we're supposed to be trained now to be teachers. We're trained now to be teachers. But sometimes we always think in terms of, I'll be just teaching the people that are at my school, or live on my block, but we may be teaching, we don't know the specifics, people who have lived through the last 6,000 years from other areas, from other cultures, and how many of them have been influenced by polygamy is staggering. Even today, Africa, roughly 11% of marriages are polygamous. 11%. Some areas, far more than that. West and Central Africa, areas influenced by Islam, have higher amounts of polygamous marriages. Burkina Faso has 36% of marriages are in polygamy. Mali, 34%. Nigeria, huge population in Nigeria, 28%. Sudan, 40%. Why? Because there's an Islamic influence. There's a culture that goes back decades, hundreds, thousands of years there. And the Quran allows for men to have up to four wives. But I, asked, I was kind of trying to figure out why is this? Why is it so popular there? And in, in addition to just the culture, they said it's because so many men there, they come from rural backgrounds, but to be able to get jobs, they have to go to the city for long amounts of time, and even against a backdrop of horrible sexually transmitted diseases and AIDS, lust becomes a problem, so they say, oh, it's probably better for us. We don't want to, you know, we want to avoid the ladies of the evening. I'll get a wife. So I'll have a wife back in the country, and I'll have a wife in the city. But that's about as typical of man's reasoning as you get. Let's avoid one sin by creating another. It's a problem. But polygamy, as we know, is not the solution for lust. But it's just another situation where mankind has confusion. Now, you may be teaching God's way to them in the future. So that's something good for us to know. You may have to go back to the very beginning, the beginnings in Genesis, and explain the purpose of man and the, why God created man and woman and the true purpose and the example of marriage for which mirrors Christ and his relationship with the church. An awesome future awaits for all of us, when men and women everywhere understand and live in marriages that God has ordained from the very beginning.